Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Hey, guys. So, there's a lot of spirits out there that enthusiasts might describe as underrated. How many times have our guests mentioned fruit brandies on this show, for example? And how many bottles of those do you have propping up your bar cart? For me, Pisco definitely fits that billing. It's complex, displays a sense of place, has a ton of character. And without it, the world would be robbed of the absolute gem that is the Pisco Sour. This is a cocktail that has velvety, smooth texture. It's simultaneously refreshing and thought-provoking. It goes great with food and it looks fabulous. Are you sold yet? Because if not, man, do we have the guest for you today. Lynette Marrero is one of the biggest names in the biz, and with good reason. She's an award-winning bartender, co-founder of the woman-only high-octane bartending competition, Speed Rack, and runs the bar program for two incredible New York spots. She can also count the likes of Alice Waters, Massimo Batura, and Hillary Clinton as colleagues through her work as an educator for the online platform Masterclass. In today's episode, Lynette brings us a hyper-focused education on one of her favorite drinks. We're talking Pisco Sours, listener, and this is the Cocktail College Podcast. Um, my name is Tim McCurdy. This is Vine Bear's Cocktail College podcast, and I am thrilled today to be joined by Lynette Marrero. Lynette, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I love going back to college. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when the topic's drinks, right? 100%. I would have aced it without studying. <laughs> <laughs> Win-win situation right there. Um, and, you know, let's dive right in. Today's drink, the Pisco Sour. Um, I think a lot of people will see your name there on the lineup and, and, and we'll be very happy to see and hear that we're discussing this drink today. I love this cocktail. It's kind of funny to think that this drink has become the one that's really been my crusade the last <laughs> <laughs> seven years almost uh, since opening Llama Inn in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a cocktail that I was introduced to a long time ago, actually, at the Flatiron Lounge. So really when I first started in cocktails mm-hmm. and it's funny when a drink comes back to you full circle uh, and then you get to really live in it and understand it and grow mm. with it so well definitely the person the perfect person sorry to be chatting with about this today um just from the get-go what are, what are some things that are notable for you or really stand out about the pisco sour what makes it kind of a, a notable drink so i think the pisco sour what's really i think amazing about it is that many people are drinking it without really knowing anything about pisco so mm-hmm. they're enjoying it because it's a really food-friendly cocktail um it's velvety you know the nature of pisco makes it um a very comfortable sour cocktail so you're not jumping straight into a whiskey sour which you have to buy into a little bit more into mm-hmm. uh you know heavier ingredients okh spirits etc you're gonna try and like delve in a little bit to this balanced cocktail that's really meant to be with food um that can be very visually appealing you know and and it's it kind of was the one that always like looked a little more delicate i think when we were starting to drink you know sours it was the one that came in the prettier glass or you know would more often be served up rather than on the rocks alternatively like a lot of whiskey sours are so i think that and plus you know people get really creative with maybe adding something that accents the floral nature of of pisco so you kind of get a lot of that about it but i think people are just enamored with it and i found lots of different ways to keep getting people to try new styles of pisco sour with very colorful ingredients which are kind of iconic and signature to what we do at the llamas amazing and i think another thing to to sort of tack on to that too that's very notable about this and some other drinks too right like the name of the spirit is in the name of the cocktail <laughs> right like it's it's the one it's the first and maybe the only pisco cocktail that folks uh, might be aware of or exploring it shouldn't be but it's definitely the first right um question for you about pisco because this is a conversation that i've had with some folks before and it strikes me as interesting that it hasn't really taken off yet as much as it as it could or should have perhaps right in the u.s right you look at 
for example, if a spirit is going to take off, the idea of having an iconic drink attached to it is very helpful, you would imagine. Sure. The name of the spirit is in the drink. We can get into things, and I hope we will, like terroir, sense of place, you know, made from natural ingredients, right? Pisco has all of this stuff, but I think it's still got a, a, a fair amount of work to do here in the U.S. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, I think until recently or the last, you know, few years, I would say, maybe the last eight, you know, Peru is still a very distant place. I think if we're looking at distillates from places, which I, I like to think of Pisco much more in a way of, of mezcal and agave spirits, because yeah. there really is about where it's from and how, and how the ingredients shine through, even though you're using the same you know, types of grapes, you have the same like arsenal, but how they're put together can be different. And I think, you know, the access of going to Mexico for Americans is a lot easier. And, and really until the last, I would say around eight years, you see more tourism going to Peru and bringing back this bottle yeah. and bringing back bottles that are not just the one that's in the, you know, tourist shop, which is like the black opaque bottle that you don't really know what's in there with kind of the Inca, uh, you know, you start, have started to see, you know, and it's been a long journey of seeing Pisco's really, you know, hold strong and, and keep to who they are and showing how beautiful um, the actual spirit is, you know, and it's hard to start branching out of things that are just quebranta and achalado, but you do see now the single varietals, Torrentel, Muscatels coming into market because people can understand now a yep. little bit more that they can have a range within this one spirit. So yeah. I think it just takes that moment. And I think what I love is that this generation of cocktailians are really invested into where things come from, why they're made, uh, and stories go further, um, which I really love. And I think that's given us a lot of opportunity to kind of preach the gospel of Pisco. Yeah. And, and one thing you mentioned there that's very important that I forgot about too is Peruvian cuisine and also tourism in general, but Peruvian cuisine, I think in my final days of working as a chef, I think I stopped working as a chef in 2015 and I was in Buenos Aires in Argentina, but that seemed like the hottest destination in the world for chefs that I knew that wanted to go and learn. People wanted to go to Lima, people wanted 100%. to eat there. And that definitely helps Pisco and the Pisco Sour, but I guess it's this thing, like you said, it's the past eight years, maybe. So it's 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 exactly. kind of nascent. And you look at that, uh, just to your point, you know, the 50 best bars in Latin America, I think like the largest percent of restaurants were from Peru. Yeah. Um, and, and the range of styles. And I think that it does helpful, right? So as you see uh, all these really beautiful cultural cuisines starting to become more honored and get at these accolades over just not just French and Italian and, and, you know, we're branching out and that connection to these places, the stories, and then the food and drink. And the Pisco Sour originally was in a cookbook, mm -hmm. you know, 1903. And that's very common. Uh, I have like my, I'm Puerto Rican and I have like the oldest, you know, the one benchmark cookbook. And in the back is where you see your coquito recipes, mm -hmm. you see a Ponche and like that drink section is so important to um, a, a Latin household and how you kind of put together your whole meal. Mm -hmm. So the, the fact that the Pisco Sour logically was there, I think is great. And I think, you know, we've also seen the evolution of cocktail bars and restaurants, really how that has grown. And as those two things have grown together, I think that has actually given access to more spirits types um, and just more flexibility with how people enjoy them throughout mm -hmm. a meal because it's different being in a cocktail bar, right? Your mood yep. in a cocktail bar, maybe the things you want at certain times are very different. The weather, you might want to be, you know, it's New York right now, so we tend to be dark, brooding, <laughs> warm, you know, a wintry kind of stirred drinks. Um, but when you're in a restaurant, you're playing with so many different other you know, ambiance, music. And so you can kind of get transported to a place. And I think the Pisco Sour does that in cocktail form. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, this is a quick like sidebar here, but you mentioned Pisco Sour being, you know, really part of the meal in a way. And also, you know, that, that kind of cocktail bars merging with restaurants. I just want to say for the record, one of the great experiences I've had in here in New York is at Lama San. Um, and having, I asked one of your bartenders if they could do a paired cocktails along with the menu and kind of like half portions because, you know, <laughs> it's a tasting menu right there. Oh my God, that was one of the amazing experiences I've had in New York. So We're just so say proud that. of that. Thank you. And, and there is something interesting about, I think, 
you know, where Pisco comes in. And like you said, dining in Lima, you have this really beautiful environment where people are very comfortable asking for cocktails through a meal. Mm -hmm. So why I love the Pisco Sour and how we've reinvented it many different ways on our menus is to think of how we can even make that more food friendly, how it goes with the menu, how we're playing with ingredients from the kitchen. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, each one of the llamas opened with its like iconic uh, Pisco Sours. So starting with Llama Inn when we opened in 2015 in November, um, I started with the flying purple Pisco, which Mm -hmm. there was something about like thinking of the texture of a Pisco Sour and what I could do to add more velvety textures. So I worked with Chef and I was like, I want to do purple potato. I don't know why I want to add potato texture in here and I want to have this beautiful smooth uh, mouthfeel and worked on that and and it made this beautiful purple amazing pisco sour with a gorgeous little white foam on top and then we put you know nutmeg and the chuncho bitters on top and it's super visual and then with lamasan really going into the nikkei which has influence from japan as well was working with um split basing that cocktail with a green tea shochu and the coconut infused pisco Mm -hmm. and then adding matcha so you have the and then a little bit of yuzu mixed in with our lime um so that's a really fun way of just again connecting it to the cuisine lowered the proof a little bit because the food is a little more delicate when you look at that so so really playing with ABV textures and all those different things. Wonderful. And so let's dive into, to, you know, a the, the classic Pisco Sour, but also, you know, those riffs too. I think this, this applies to all. What are you looking for from the perfectly executed version of the drink? What, what are you expecting from the glass? So the biggest, I would start with the challenges. Mm-hmm. The biggest challenge is the citrus note. Um, you know, here in the U.S., we're not getting the perfect little sweet limones that you would get in Peru that are like, they're limes, but they're almost a little sweet. They're tiny. They're delicious. Um, So we've always adapted to doing a split base of lemon and lime. And that's something that I learned back at Flatiron. It kind of has traveled through like the cocktail culture. You know, this was like, as everyone was trying to replicate these drinks from the old books, where we all kind of aligned on, there was half lemon, half lime to try to achieve this um, perfect limone. Um, and then the second thing would be the, the sugar, which then comes into play when you're working with the citrus, uh, which sugar source you use. But that one thing is the biggest thing. Like, are you going to do a little bit more lime? And I think we've branched out of just, you know, half, half lemon lime and have started playing with, okay, well, what if I'm using a key lime? What if I'm using, you know, like we do a little yuzu? What if I'm using mandarin? Mm-hmm. Uh, or um, what if I'm using um, minor lemons? Yeah. You know, it's just way playing with that citrus to kind of get that perfect. Um, I've been dreaming about a mandarin pisco sour. That's what <laughs> <laughs> right now it's perfect citrus season. So like all the different Ooh. variations that you can work with are, <laughs> are out there. Check out all the beautiful fruit right now. Um, so, so I think there's that, that one balance. And then now working at Lama San, where I have a bigger range of things like Satsuma and all these other different um, citrus fruits to work with to balance. So that's mm-hmm. the the first place I start is like what that balance is going to be. And it's important to taste those. Then the second part is our sugar mm-hmm. um, and why that makes a big difference. Like if I'm using a one-to-one simple that is more, you know, equal parts water and sugar, it's not going to maybe stand up to all the elements in the same way. So I like to use either a rich simple. We actually use a lot of cane sugar mm-hmm. that we make in-house um, with them. Or sometimes like this summer where I was doing something really fun and fortifying um, a rich simple with eucalyptus to bring out this mintiness that you would have um, and really kind of embracing the high altitude of Peru. Like what would you have if you were like hiking up Machu Picchu and (laughs) needed a Pisco Sour to revive you? Maybe you'd want it with some beautiful eucalyptus that opens everything up. Um, So then playing with that sugar source. A lot of people, you know, there was a point where a lot of people were using gum syrup to work with it. I don't necessarily think you need it. It's always great if you have it. Um, Yeah. But you can do achieve the same thing with a good quality sugar that's rich. And what is gum syrup? What is gum syrup giving you? For those that aren't aware of it, for those who haven't worked with it before, what is that giving you that that you might not get from a standard like simple syrup or, or other sweetening agents? Sure, the gum arabic gives you a silkiness. So when I was talking about that silkiness that I wanted to get with potato, you can get that also with that gum arabic. And you can buy gum syrups out there. Um, fun, A fun thing to play around with is uh, small hands pineapple gum and making yourself a pineapple pisco sour with that. Um, delicious. That uh, sounds wonderful. And, you know, so just, and you can do that at home. You can actually research some recipes if you want to make gum arabic uh, at home. You just have to go online, get the, you know, stuff that you need for it. Yeah. Um, but simplicity, like I said, cane sugar will do a really good job with that. Um, and then, you know, it's balancing the recipe because, 
you know, in Peru, they're like three ounce a piece go. <laughs> <laughs> one ounce of that, uh, the lemon is the one ounce of sugar. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a definitely a hotter drink. Yep. Where I'm like, okay, we need to tone that down a little bit. Let's go to two ounces. Yeah. Um, and play there. But then it's also the last part is then choosing, you know, what kind of pisco I want. Um, typically I'll reach for acholado um, mm-hmm. as my first go just kind of bringing all that florality, having all, you know the mixture of the different varietals. But then if I am gonna pull. Um, do a quebranta or if I'm going to do muscatel, which, you know, the muscatel has like kind of little caramelly sort of notes. So these are the I'll names of the, the, the grapes because yes. Pisco being a grape-based distillate. Yes, right. exactly. And so, these are the name of the grape varieties. Or I wonder if actually, I wonder if you could possibly talk us through, say folks are approaching a bottle of Pisco for the first time or, or they're not that familiar with it. They know what Pisco is. What are some things they should be looking out for on the label and what do they signify? Great. So the first thing you're going to do, um, like I said, I use that word acholado, which is mixed. So that's mm-hmm. going to be one that uses all of the different grapes. There, you know, we Pisco goes to a very lengthy process. There are, um, I think it's eight different grapes you can use. Um, we typically will see the acholados and then we'll typically see quebranta in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, like I said, because people have started to you know, see that we will are enjoying more spirits. You've seen Italia's come in. Um, you've seen Torrentel. You'll see Muscatel. So you see these aromatic grapes um, really coming in. And, and, you know, what you have to kind of chase them and see what really speaks to you. Uh, traditionally, if you look for a Gabranta, that's going to be kind of your starting point. Um, you know, there are some really cool brands out now. Um, you'll see, like, certain brands will have an extension, Barcel, 1615. Um Machu Pisco always has like their uh, La Diablada and sometimes they'll have the marks of the Italia. I mean, all these are based on like wine, what availability of grapes are. So right. sometimes you'll see that Capuro also has their vintages are labeled. So you'll once you start really deep in, <laughs> digging into Pisco, uh, we actually have a beautiful collection that we've amassed of kind of being able to taste um, Pisco's from different years um, and see how Ooh. they've evolved in bottle. Um, but you'll be comfortable if you get a quebranta or nachalado. Um, so you pisco just recently launched, which they are a single origin pisco who are trying to really work in this idea, which I really like what they're doing. They're really like meeting the farmers and working very much in this way that I feel like, you know, agave has gone with mezcal where you want to know who these smaller producers yes. are and bringing them together and working kind of in a co-op model to get their grapes into bottle and then get them to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been really cool to see how they're kind of working in that that method, which is going to start bringing some really cool um, distillates here. I really love what they're doing as well. And like, you know, if you want to just talk about making any spirit for a moment here, right? Like <laughs> such a difficult undertaking in itself, but imagine not being based in the U.S., then trying to get into the U.S. Yeah. as a market and even just trying to understand, you know, the, the, the different system of distribution we have here. It's absolutely Impossible. insane. So I think what they're doing <laughs> is amazing. Their, uh, their first release actually featured in our Top 50 Spirits last oh, year. Awesome. So, yeah, we're big fans here at Vine Pair. Suyo Pisco, check them out. Yeah, and and there I love that you know what I love that story is is that you know they're they're young uh, Peruvians who mm-hmm. want to bring their national spirit, you know, to a new audience. And I, mm-hmm. and I think in general, that's kind of where you're seeing the gastronomy with all of it. Um, I love that, you know, the people, if you go into our restaurants, you see people who are drinking Pisco sours, it's everybody. It's yeah. not a particular type of person. It is so friendly and, and everyone can really enjoy it. And um, I just love that you can really just kind of, you know, you'll delve into it. Like I personally, I love an Italia Pisco Sour because I, I love the Italia grape. I like how it gives a little greenness. It brings some brightness. I have this beautiful florality. Um, if you look at Mosto Verde, which you'll see on certain bottles, um, that is a green must if you're looking on it. And yeah. so those tend to be, have a little more roundness, a little a touch sweetness, perceived sweetness to you, um, to your palate. So if you want something less dry, mm-hmm. um, those would be ones you would look at. You know, but I really respect, you know, the 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 Pisco producers have been working so hard for so long. Um, and I think to your point at Barcom in Brooklyn last year, being able to see them all in a room and yep. and taste through the different varietals really gives you a perspective. How, mm-hmm. what kind of styles people want, um, you know, the grapes, you know, that's a huge part of it. And so I love when you can look at a product that is so based in agriculture um, and then, you know, tasting from year to year 
vintages, how the yields are, what, you know, really working again to support farmers who are doing the right things. Um, and so I respect when I see those kind of practices happening. Mm-hmm. And I hope that Pisco, more people try it and yeah. more people really support um, this spirit because it really is something that once you get into it, you'll start being really <laughs> geek out. And it's yeah. subtleties of flavor, right? Like it's not going to hit you on the head um, with uh, distinctions between them. You have to start training your palate but you'll start noticing that there is this beautiful uniqueness between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I think is really special. Amazing. And one final question, therefore, just for folks who are trying to maybe, yeah, get into it, start to geek out. Would you say that maybe folks approaching it from like a wine perspective too, it's therefore a better idea to taste the differences between varieties rather than like start looking at vintages or whatnot, because there's going to be more. 100%. Yeah, there's going to be more differences. Start with your grapes. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then even like try, I think a good comparison is to try a Moste Verde Mm -hmm. version of the same grape. So you can just kind of see like just how simply uh, the different way of distilling it um, is going to give you that that subtle difference, right? Mm -hmm. So how how it's produced. Um, And I think that's really cool. You know, some people will you know, they keep them in bottle longer. So, and it's not, nothing's barrel aged. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the Peruvian rules. Um, so people often will age in bottles. Some people feel, you know, that Pisco doesn't even hit its prime until it's been aged in a, in a tank or in for six years. So we're, we're, we're seeing some evolution when it comes to even being in an inert container like glass. Yes. 100%. Wow. So you're see, you're seeing this interesting kind of evolution mm-hmm. of this, of this spirit and how people really, um, you know, there's some incredible Piscos that you can try that are, um, you know, maybe like $100 for a 500 ml and they are gorgeous. They are using, you know, pounds and pounds of grapes to make this one bottle and wow. and the, the flavor and the richness and all the things that you want out of it. The aromatics are just captured in there. So mm-hmm. it's pretty incredible. Again, like you say, and some of the things we were speaking about before, this is if you, if you got into mezcal, okay, profiles are different, <laughs> but this is the next frontier to, to really geek out. You know, you have the envidrio, en you know, like yep. again, like classic. There's, a, I don't know, I think there's a lot of similarities there, and yeah. I think there is. I think if you're if you're not looking for, so your point, the, it's it's a little more subtle, right? Mm-hmm. So pisco, you're going to go into floral, but you will get things like when you're tasting it, um, you'll get some of those vegetal notes you'll Mm -hmm. get you know cut grass and then you'll taste another one like i said like that muscatel that blew my mind that i i had it it has that hint of like a beautiful caramel toffee and it's from Mm -hmm. grapes and you're like how does this flavor come out of this um and it's just really beautiful so i was like oh that'd be great with the dessert you know on our menu so that's the the fun part but i think it is going to be about in the next few years how guests and uh, really start playing around with the single varietals and start, you know, even working in um, styles of drinks that are not sours, right? Mm-hmm. Because the sour, you're putting a lot of other things in so you can mask up a lot of the flavor. But also, you know, I would love a better piece of sour, depending on which one you have. That's where you're balancing your sugar and your citrus to really bring out what its characteristics are. Um, but, you know, we have a variation on kind of a Vesper on our menu at Llama Inn that is Pisco and Reposado tequila. So changing out Pisco for the gin, the Repo for vodka, but not really. (laughs) (laughs) Very Uh, similar. And it's a great drink. And Mm -hmm. and I think that that's a fun thing. So we've been doing a lot with split basing Pisco um, with other spirits that they play well together. And it's, they both bring something to the party. Amazing. Um, And so when it comes to just approaching the classic Pisco sour or, you know, yeah, not riffs, classic version, um, is there anything you would like to add here in terms of your considerations when selecting which Pisco to use first? And also, is that your first consideration or is it actually the citrus and sweetener like you mentioned before? Where are you going first when you're building this cocktail sort of classic? Well, I, I usually have like a really good benchmark, uh, like a, my workhorse. Yep. My, you know, that's in every category, right? Yep. We all have one that's like in our well that goes and it's usually an achalado or a quebranta are the two that I would have as my benchmarks um, for building cocktails with. So just deciding which one of those I want. um, And then I play around with from there, you know, and you know, every brand, everyone has a different style. Um, So I start, I start there first and then I'm layering in that citrus and the sugar element. Uh, Like I said, I'm, I'm really have 
gone completely the other way. I'm a, you know, I used to be like, yeah, it's fine, simple. You just kind of balance it out. But I really think like a two to one or a cane really is the way to go to perfect this cocktail because mm-hmm. I do think you need all that texture yes. uh, from from the sugar. Um, and then again, with the citrus, as fresh as it can be is my biggest key. So whether you're using half lemon, half lime um, or a little more lime, like maybe you need three quarter lime, quarter lemon, what, mm-hmm. you know, whatever your balance and whatever you prefer, um, has to be as fresh as can be, you know. You'll often see when they make ceviche, for example, they squeeze the limes with tongs Mm -hmm. to get no white pith. So it's super pure and sweet, and that's how you... So thinking about that, how you're extracting your juice, so maybe a hand press if you're doing it at home is best. Um, If you're doing it in the bar... I know it's not practical. We don't hand press our juice for <laughs> for the Pisco Sours, but that's where I balance between the lemon and lime to try to achieve a profile. And that's where that rich cane actually kind of helps me in a high volume setting mm-hmm. uh, to balance. And then, you know, we can't forget bitters. Bitters are very important. Yep. Uh, the chuncho bitters, which are the Amargo bitters that you get in Peru, um, mm-hmm. really hard to find. Sometimes you can find them on Amazon or someplace. Um, but if you can't find them, Angostura is a perfectly fine, um, and we're using substitute. this as the, the, the garnish on top, the garnish on mm-hmm. top, but it also adds flavor, right? It's mm-hmm. bringing something of to, course, yeah. um, the, to the party. You can always take, um, Angostura bitters too, as well, and blend that with maybe <laughs> some, uh, whiskey barrel aged bitters to get a slight touch of what you want from the Amargo bitters. Like there's a, a, you know, the, the, aromatics are slightly different Mm -hmm. um but you know you'll be you'll be okay you want nothing will be lost or ruined (laughs) just using traditional aromatic uh bitters and last component of the drink here and a very important one egg white this is a shaken cocktail i really want to dive into this with you and i'll probably start the, the the one thing that i'll say and i forgot who said this to me but was a bartender said that with the exception of the pisco sour they felt like drinkers across the board and bartenders maybe too are kind of moving away from egg whites for, for various different reasons, but with the exception of the Pisco Sour, has to be in there all the time. Yeah. But let's chat about it. Tell me tell me everything I need to know about egg whites in this cocktail. Well, egg whites are, I mean, it's so important to this drink. It's that velvet that velvety texture you get. It's binding all those ingredients. It's bringing... Um, you know, I think it makes this cocktail a culinary cocktail. Like if you look at those drinks, right? It was in cookbooks is where it started and and that's where its DNA aligns. Um, you know, we obviously at the restaurant separate them for the shift because we were cracking an egg per cocktail. We'd be very slow and we're pumping out way yep. too many Pisco sours. <laughs> so again, with something like that, if you are prepping it for an event, you know, if you're having a few friends at home and you want to set it up for them as fresh as possible, you know, break them for the day, put them in a little squeeze bottle. I use about three quarters of an ounce to an ounce of egg white in mm-hmm. per cocktail. Um, and it doesn't, taste you know like that seems sounds like a lot to people they're like oh my goodness i'm like it's actually quite balanced Mm -hmm. um with kind of my two one one uh recipe two parts pisco one part of my citrus blend one part of my sugar um and then i have that three quarter to one ounce of my egg and that's really depending on like how Mm -hmm. you know how can you know thick your eggs are egg whites are just as temperamental as everything else you get out there (laughs) so um i don't like using the uh egg whites in the that are pre-separated pasteurized i have used the modernist pantry egg white uh egg white powder. powder i have used it and actually have been very successful reconstituting those so mm-hmm. if you're kind of like a little bit afraid you want to kind of have something a little more yeah quote unquote you know get just good eggs is yeah. the key um but that modernist fresh. Pan- fresh uh the modernist pantry does constitute really nicely i recommend mm-hmm. using a hand blender to make it so that's more if you're like doing an event and you're like i don't have time to crack you know mm-hmm. 40 eggs for right. this. The and modernist- what am I doing with 40 yolks? <laughs> exactly. You're like, <laughs> Making ah. a little custard. <laughs> exactly. So that's a good way. And it actually, I was really happy to see that that works so well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, a whole bunch of things about blender, no blender, mm-hmm. um, milkshake machines, no milkshake machines to use it. Um, you know, you can, if you want to, use a hand blender um, if you're making them in large batches. I think that really works. Um, for, for whipping it. For whipping the egg white, yeah. yes. So again, uh, if we're going to build it, we're going to mm-hmm. put, you know. But before we jump into that, yeah. sorry, I want to <laughs> ask you a question. So you, you mentioned one thing there. You said three quarters to an ounce of egg white. So A, how much roughly in terms of volume are we looking at from a standard egg white? And if you are putting that into like a, a, a plastic squeezy bottle, like you say, yeah. like, are you 
ever so slightly incorporating the egg whites or do you not want to do that because it might start breaking down like the, the the kind of structure of them what's the what's the process there this is fascinating uh, breaking them down the yeah. egg whites like uh, yeah i mean it's you know we just kind of get a big old quart container yeah. and we separate them out i mean it's approximately one normal size not jumbo egg per cocktail is going to be three quarters to an ounce. Okay. Okay. So that's kind of like one. Approximately. One okay. Yeah. Approximately one egg white. Um, mm-hmm. I do like being able to separate them out now. Like I've been converted to that um, because you can actually have better quality control of your eggs. Make sure mm-hmm. everything, you know, you don't have the like, you know, sometimes the white congealed part, you can toss that out and just kind of keep a nice, pure, easy to measure product. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not dealing with like potentially getting eggshell in your tray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think also just like, in terms of this, this harks back to my days of trying to, of poaching eggs for brunch in restaurant service. Right. And, and people have all these techniques with vinegar. Should you salt the water, (laughs) it's going to break it down. Are you stirring the water? Ultimately you just need fresh eggs, right? But if you crack an egg or, and, and specifically try and separate the white, you will see with older eggs, you will get like water literally going off. Um, and then the rest of the egg white will hopefully hold together. So yeah. that's why I just kind of, I found it interesting that like, because they, they do hold together in structure. I don't know. I think they I'm overthinking do. this. No, it's <laughs> right. I mean, it can be intimidating, right? So when people are trying to separate the egg and like go back and forth with the yolk to get the white out, it terrifies people. Yeah. But don't worry about it. You get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're doing it at home to save those yolks, lots of recipes that you yep. can do with uh, those later. <laughs> um, but I, I do find that it's actually, it's very Zen work yeah. to separate. <laughs> and also a tip. Uh, I don't know how hygienic this is. So take it with a pinch of salt, but you can use the shell. If you get some yolk yeah. in there, the shell is the best thing to take things out with, right? That's like fair, yeah. The shell it, that's it, intact. Yeah. And obviously like wash your eggs before you do all these yeah. things. Like, Pretty simple. There you uh, go. Keep them in the fridge if you're here in the U.S. Exactly, which is so bizarre. But mm-hmm. yes, I mean, you look at good pastry chefs need to get it. But this is where we'll go into a conversation mm-hmm. about, you know, temperature mm-hmm. and getting the eggs to bind um, at certain temperatures. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously we have to keep our egg whites completely cold. Um, which is not ideal. Not ideal. So <laughs> I think this is where we get into like dry shake versus yep. which, you know, reverse dry shake. I'm a, for sure, I dry shake first person because mm-hmm. i'm like i want it to hit my alcohol and everything while that's still room temperature yeah um before it gets to the ice component because i do think it needs just to chill down the temperature of that egg let it really emulsify it also if you're building rounds of drinks mm-hmm. it makes a lot easier to kind of dry shake that yeah. uh piece of sour while you're building your stirred drinks and all of that because you can sit there and take plenty of time and dry <laughs> shake it it's light you can go yeah. with your non-dominant hand and shake away get it as frothy as you want and then when you're ready then you're going to add the ice shake it serve it um, amazing and that's where i kind of i've really like i've tried all the different ways and i'm like i'm just stuck on dry mm-hmm. shake it's just the way I'm going to be. Love it. So talk <laughs> us through that build then. And can you talk it through again for, for a classic, your classic sure. Pisco Sour spec? Um, and yeah, talk us through start to finish that build and serve. Yeah. So I'm going to start obviously uh, like with my, I have my two tins. So if you're not using a cobbler shaker, which is all in one, I have my two tins. I'm going to build my small tin, my big tin in the back. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start and in the small tin. I'm going to add my two to one um, cane sugar syrup which I prefer. And I'm adding, um, I do an ounce of it because I do think it needs enough of that to bind. Uh, and then I'll do half ounce fresh lemon juice, half ounce fresh lime juice. And I'm just doing a very standard. So now that's one to one, um, which, you know, Peruvians might think it's a little too, you know, sour. They yep. prefer more sugar. Um, you can always adjust for your guests and add a little more sugar um, if you want. Or I would lean into maybe trying um, you know, a musta verde, if someone wants the more floral um, kind of pisco sour, that, that'll kind of trick your mind into thinking it's sweeter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I am put that in there, and then I'm going to in my add my two ounces of my pisco, uh, achilado or quebranta, typically for just a regular pisco sour. And then on my back tin, I'm going to go ahead and separate my egg uh, on its own. And putting them in the back tin, because if I'm doing it by hand with the yolk, if I accidentally get yolk in, Either I can use a shell to pull it out or I can just start with another egg and mm-hmm. I'm not messing up the rest of the drink. Also, I don't, when we're building in a bar um, or even if you're at home and you're like making drinks while you're also cooking and getting everything done, I don't want that egg white to react with my um, citrus and everything else yet until I'm ready. So Got it. putting in that back tin gives me time to like get everything else needed done. 
Um, and then I will go ahead and combine those two together and dry shake. With the dry shake for me, it's mostly about getting air on it. Um, I don't think it necessarily takes more time or less time. It's really just about getting enough aeration. Sometimes the size of your cocktail shaker will be your nemesis with this. I feel like okay. you do need to have, um, I like using the tin on tin because I do get just kind of a more air going through. Um, if you have a cobbler, then you're gonna have to really kind of hard shake a bit more mm -hmm. um, or try a wider cobbler that has more surface area because I think part of this, and I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but I feels like it just needs that action and then the more space it has to interact within, um, then you're gonna get it. Then I'll, I'll let that down. I'll add my ice and then I'll go ahead and shake that again and get it nice and frothy. I usually let it, after I shake it, I pour some, I let it sit for a, just a quick couple seconds to get, let it settle again. And then I keep topping off and getting the rest of the mm -hmm. beautiful, foamy, wonderful um, Pisco Sour out. Some people will Amazing. do a double strain. Um, I think if you um, use your, if you can close the gate on your Hawthorne strainer well enough, I prefer not to, because I think a little bit of like, the if you get a couple little ice chips i don't think it's bad for it I, but i wanted to make sure i'm getting enough of the foam that's coming out onto the top of the drink and i feel like sometimes a double strainer takes away some of the things that i right. want right they all that effort you just put into <laughs> yeah. getting this incredible <laughs> texture right like i i yeah. often think that i'm like why yeah I'm like i'm big fan of using the you know the fine strainer for lots of other cocktails i just think use your Hawthorne's the proper way mm -hmm. <laughs> and so closing the gate just for anyone out there it isn't no it's like if you kind of look at your strain your Hawthorne strainers this is the one that has the coil on it there's oftentimes a piece of you know you have the handle and then there's a piece of metal that's sticking up right mm -hmm. and you can use your index finger put it on the top of your shaker and then just keep pressing that forward and you'll see that the metal will come out over the springs so mm -hmm. you have the springs holding on to the to the rounded curvature of the shaker and then that metal piece comes out and that's kind of helping you get the best strain um so you'll you'll be able to get really good straining and you just mm -hmm. have to like practice closing the gate yeah and you, <laughs> so you're completely closing there for this sorry or you're, you're yeah you're going all the way i'm going all the way and then i can release it as i need to if i have more foam that's waiting mm -hmm. um so it's just kind of the way of using that that mm -hmm. tool to the best of its abilities and are you straining into a coupe glass? And then talk us through the, the the bitter application as well, because that's something I struggle with. You know, I turn my <laughs> Angostura, it's either nothing comes out or it all comes out. Like, yeah. how do you control that? Well, okay, so yeah. So then you're straining into a coupe or I like, we like to use these like sour glasses that feel like a, a down glass, but they're a little more curved, and, mm -hmm. but they're really very pretty. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're gonna put your bitters on top. I like using those more controlled dashers, whether it's the Japanese dasher, because it is a little bit of a finer line to yeah. your point every other dasher is different. Like the Ingostura specifically has its own style, but then any other aromatic bitters has like the, the flat round with the, you know, you just can't get the same yep. in my opinion. And it's funny because I think Ingostura a few years ago started actually selling caps that fit on their <laughs> bottles. <laughs> so so can, they're acknowledging it. So you could, yeah, they know they're like, okay, we need a uniform dasher. I like to start off like to one side of my glass and like prepare myself for like making us a, a line. We do a, a line across. So it's a very quick flick of your hand across yep. the top and try and get a line if not you can just do much easier three dots and then you can take those dots if you want to and use like a toothpick and turn them into like little like fleur-de-lis mm. but um you know you can have fun with your your bitters <laughs> on there. if you really want to you can get yourself a little like you know spray get a sprayer oh. on your bitters and just like get a little cut out and spray it very you know, maybe nice maybe you can make a wu-tang sign on your piece oh, yeah. of or something <laughs> two things that go very well together hand exactly in hand. <laughs> i guess the, that that motion sorry just watching you do the the one line yeah. motion there for me made me think of maybe if you've started making a lot of sourdough during the pandemic <laughs> and you do the whole bread cut thing like yes. that's the that's the motion you had going there that's so. the motion it's that's very like a quick flick of your wrist yeah. and, it, and it's it's that way you have to be very quick be and confident. go across and be confident so <laughs> do it on a surface that you're okay mopping up uh because bitters <laughs> do stain <laughs> so oh, they sure a do. dark cutting board <laughs> 
Well, amazing. I think that's that's a wonderful overview. Actually, it's more than an overview. It's a deep dive on the drink. <laughs> Just wondering if you have any other thoughts on, on the Pisco Sour to share today. If not, I have another question that, that's quasi-related. Yeah, I do. So now. just kind of giving you the perspective now of using the machines to make it happen. So, ah, yes. Because I think this is an important part. You know, if you have a sour in your menu um, or you're making it home this summer and you don't want to be like, you know, sh- hand-shaking every single one, I like those um, milk shake whipper machines uh, because they have the, the little like handle on it that's gonna emulsify your eggs um, you can even use those like little cafe whippers which also work <laughs> yeah. to make your life easy but it's just about getting that emulsification um, you can build in those tins um, quite a bit now this is the one time when I'm using those that I will put a little bit of crushed ice in okay so when I build into those milkshake tins we always say we're like using like you know if we're building and we're doing this for volume, right? So I want to be able to have like three Pisco Sours in that kind of 16-ounce metal tin. So I build them and I put about probably like a quarter cup of crushed ice that's going to emulsify into the drink. And I do that because I want it. I mean, A, it's a very wet type of ice. Um, it kind of disappears and, it, and you're just getting that constant agitation. So it's okay at that point to have that coldness meeting the egg all at one time mm-hmm. um and i f- and it's really great because you can just put them up there it does its magic and then you strain them off and garnish <laughs> so perfect i highly recommend it if you're if you have a high volume situation or mm-hmm. um to work on those but also the hand stick blender would also work one that you use kind of to puree soups etc as well can be used to um you know Amazing. just as long as you have like a large enough container and you have ice um mm-hmm. and that's what i would do so all your ingredients in there quarter <laughs> cup of ice per yeah. Is that a quarter for three drinks, sorry, or a quarter um, per? It, it's probably, depending on how wet the ice is, it's, mm-hmm. a, it was, it's like about a half cup to three. Mm-hmm. Um, quarter cup, I'm doing a single. I know it seems strange that I would use kind of very close, but like from one to three, it's a different volume because it tends to be a little more wet. Got it. Um, but yeah, you want to use very wet ice. You don't want to, this isn't like, you know, if you're using like a Vitamix blender, it's a very different thing if you're doing like your pina colada because we don't want that texture, right? Mm-hmm. We don't, unless you want a frozen pisco sour, which is also delicious, Ooh. then we're not working on that. I still want this to come off as a deliciously handshaken style um, mm-hmm. sour cocktail. So the temperature should be great, but not freezing. Um, so, but frozen pisco sours are also really good. <laughs> That's something I need to explore imminently. Could not care less if it's 17 degrees outside. <laughs> it's Fahrenheit for her. Mainly U.S. audience. Exactly. Um, one question I have for you. So before we get into our final section, which is where we get to know you, our guest, more. One thing that, that, that bridges our conver- both of those conversations. I was wondering in terms of running, you know, Lama In, Lama San, you know, you mentioned you started out at Flatiron Lounge. I was wondering from a bartender's perspective and creating cocktails, is it more restrictive to to be quite quite focused on a on a cuisine as opposed to more ambiguous or does that really help because you almost have like those those guiding guiding stars there or those almost parameters to work within not completely but yeah i mean i've been very fortunate like i started the flatiron lounge and there was just really beautiful foundations i feel like you know i I learned like the mother sauces you know i learned yeah and i was really fortunate you know we had dale degroff audrey saunders gaz regan all these people walking in every day and imparting knowledge. Dave Wondertim wanted to share this cocktail knowledge with young bartenders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really got a very good school on history of cocktails and how and making them and then trying new things with them and um then i moved on and worked at freeman's restaurant uh which still i love that bar program uh aaron reese runs at bands bar and and you know that place was another great place of finding a way because it was classic cocktails in a very high volume rustic kind of gastropub space and we were <laughs> turning and burning but you wow. know making you know sours and all this stuff you know out there and that gave me the timing on how to work on, you know, and, and obviously the drinks there were kind of thought in that style, lots of whiskey drinks and things that were going with the food. And I, and I realized how much I really like the idea of working in an environment where food is presented because I think it gave context to the drinks, the style of the drinks I'm serving. You have range. You can play around. And I think for me, like what I love, I love a good concept. Yeah. I get, you know, I think it helps, right, to bring 
in focus your whole everything, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I love kind of problem solving, you know, how I'm going to incorporate, you know, trending drink styles and bringing them to the space. And so what's great is that all of the, and I feel like with Chef Eric, we kind of talked a lot about it. You know, he he worked at 11 Madison Park. He worked at, you know, in great kitchens all over Philly with like Steven Starr and Mike Isabella. So he had this very classic foundation, but then he wanted to give it the creative direction of, you know, working on with the food he grew up with and bringing that here and bringing it in a New York style. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's a great way to kind of look at the programs. And I'm very focused on that. You know, Natasha and I, when we did um, open Lama Sun, I was really tough on her with what kind of drinks we were making. And so when a new idea came up, I'd be like, no, that ingredient just doesn't work with this. So this ingredient yep. does, this does not. And that kind of sometimes, you know, putting ourselves in a more like really sticking to the focus created some things I would have never thought about. Mm-hmm. And that was really exciting. I think we came up with, you know, that opening menu, there were things I would have never dreamed of putting together, but because we were so focused on what the creative concept was and going with Nikkei and bringing this Peru, Japan, but not in a way that was, felt like, not that it felt like, you know, oh, we're just doing infusions or it's just, a mm-hmm. you know, not doing trite yeah. you know, combinations, uh, but really deeply investing into what that meant and what the DNA of that would mean and how Nikkei would really show itself in cocktail form. And then at Lama Inn, really thinking about, you know, how we're presenting Peru and Latin America in a certain way of gastronomy and mm-hmm. really thinking through that. So this summer, you know, I delved in on the roof with a, a menu that really did look at ingredients from Peru and at the different altitudes. I think that is so important when you're looking at that. And I think when we look at spirits, you know, obviously where they grow, where the ingredients are grown, what altitude, where they're from makes a real difference. So how can we bring that with other ingredients um, mm-hmm. and tie that in? So I, I personally love it. Like it's, it's actually so much better for me. Like, I don't know if I could ever go back to having mm-hmm. just working at a classic cocktail bar where, you know, I can do everything. Like, of course, sometimes I miss it. And, uh, and obviously, you know, it's harder in a restaurant to kind of branch out. Like at restaurants, your menu guides 90% of the choices that the guests are coming in for, or mm-hmm. at least that style. And that's okay. You know, we're not going to get it. We're not getting as many dealers choice and those kind of things, but those are fun when guests do ask for them and you're able to kind of guide the team into it. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's fun and it makes me have to just think deeper. Amazing. That's fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing. And and no, yeah, just hearing you speak there too, like some of those combinations you mentioned earlier, you know, like pisca and shochu and, and sure. you know, also like green tea, matcha infusions, like all of these things would feel probably a little bit out, well, would feel out of place on other menus or would be like, yeah, maybe this is a great combination, but what what the hell is it doing here? But it makes so much sense there. And the upshot for drinkers, diners like myself, is just that, <laughs> that it's out there and you get to have these in a, in a place, in a setting that makes sense and, and they work exactly. so well and together. And because you can get cocktails everywhere, I feel like yeah. it, it does really help to know what your style is and then you you kind of build on mm-hmm. your repertoire and I and I love that because it all of the classic cocktail training I had has just made it better for me I'm like you learn all those rules and then you learn how to break them in the right way mm-hmm. and that's been um really great and I you know when Ryan Chetty and I do on our mask class we're like we're actually follow that entire like ethos we're like we're gonna tell you to make drinks this way and this way everyone's gonna tell you how to make them but then you really just toss all that information out and start learning <laughs> to do it on your own so your piece goes sours I expect you to play around experiment try new citrus try different sugar mm-hmm. sources see how that works for you um and be playful with it perfect it then tear it up and <laughs> <Yeah>. start again. <laughs> I love it well Lynette let's let's get into that final section of the show then and our five recurring questions that we ask every guest how are you feeling heading into it that's right. not one I, of them. I feel confident <laughs> I was like oh wait is that the first question no. <laughs> that's an easy one you get from the beginning there are no wrong answers no let's jump into the first question here so um interesting one here which style or category of spirit um, typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bars? Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, rum has always been a big historical. Um, it's kind of, I think it's the first spirit that I really started to delve into. Um, now I would say, obviously, I have a big Pisco back bar, but rum always has a good place when I can find really cool rums that work, which they do. Like we have beautiful Japanese rums at Lama San mm. that are so cool to play with and with the Nikkei vibe and then pairing them because they have these like 
beautiful tropical notes because they're mostly from, you know, Okinawa and the warmer parts of Japan. And then pairing those with pisco are beautiful. <laughs> Wonderful. Love it. Question number two. Which ingredient or tool do you think is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Ooh. You know, which ingredient or tool? You know, I'm all about a good bar spoon. Good bar spoon can make or break you. Okay. <laughs> Has Tell to have me. the right weight to it. Um, I feel like, you know, we got into this point where everyone's getting those bar spoons that were just so tall. And for <laughs> me, I'm not a super tall person. I'm a very average height woman. And those would just be too big for me. I'd be like, I feel like I was like drowning in these bar spoons and the weight of them just didn't work well for me. I have small hands too. So I'm like, I, I have the right teardrop spoons with the right weight. And I feel like, you know, then I can be ambidextrous if I have the right spoons. Right. If you don't, if one's a little weighted a little bit differently then my non-dominant hand can't stir. And I'm like, I can't be a one-handed bartender. I got drinks to put out. <laughs> Amazing. The, the extension of your hand right there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Question number three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received in this industry? Oh, I mean, be accountable. And I give that one back to lots of people. Um, you know, and, and I don't think it was even said to me kind of in that way. It just was the expectations of if you say you're going to do something you do and you follow through. Um, and I and I realized that that was something that is so important. Um, you know, we are an industry that is a community and everyone has to hold up their end of the bargain for us all to complete the task. And you can see that as little microcosms and bars and restaurants every day. You know, if someone doesn't show up, we're all behind on prep, behind on serving, behind on getting, you know, everything out to our guests. So it's definitely, um, you know, and communicate. So. Mm -hmm. Wonderful piece of advice <laughs> right there. Question number four, penultimate question. All right. If you, if you could only visit one last bar in your life, past or present, what would it be? Oh, the bar from Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say, play it again, Sam. Have a fabulous martini <laughs> and be in that place that is just like the epitome of the best bar. Mm -hmm. You know, everything about it. The mm -hmm. You walk in, there's a tone, there's a little danger, a little excitement, romance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's I think it's really the bar that just makes you feel like. Would you like to experience it in black and white as well? Oh, that'd be fabulous. That'd be fun, right? <laughs> be super fun with everyone kind of dressed in yeah. the right theme. Uh, I would love that. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Final question. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? A uh, 50-50 gin martini, probably navy strength gin, olive and a twist. Very nice olive and a twist. <laughs> have both. Have your cake both. and eat it. I'll probably have three olives because it's my last one. So I need to have all of them in the beautiful. <laughs> but I love a beautiful uh, gin martini. There's something very comforting about it when you get it right. And again, it's a, a drink where texture comes in, how it's stirred, how it's presented, the choices of of the spirit, um, of the gin, what vermouths are being used. Um, it just is a really elegant cocktail and, and comes in a great glass and you'd probably have it at Rick's, yeah. you know, and, <laughs> and being in the 1940s <laughs> in Casablanca. So there you go. Sounds fabulous. Well, Lynette, thank you so much again for joining us. Let's go grab a Pisco Sour. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Greenberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>